The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. In the general market, young adult books are one of the most popular genres. And while books are written for readers aged 12 to 18, readers of all ages read books like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and Divergent, just to name a few. At the same time, in Christian publishing, many YA authors have struggled to connect with young readers. So how do we fix this problem, and how do we connect with younger readers with our books? To help answer this question, we have a special guest. She is a blogger at GoTeenWriters.com, which has been named one of Writer's Digest 101 Best Websites for Authors. She's an award-winning author of over a dozen teen novels, including By Darkness Hid and Captives. And I can say from personal experience that she's a pretty decent sword fighter. Jill Williamson, (laughs) welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. It's an honor to be here. And it's been a while since we had that sword fight. That's right. (laughs) Writers' conferences have gotten a little bit safer in recent years. (laughs) I think the insurance people uh, put a kibosh on the sword fighting. But uh, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get started writing young adult books? Okay, well, I was a youth pastor's wife at the time. And I was reading all the books that my teens were reading, and I thought it would be fun. I I started writing a book for them. And so um, I was writing a book about a spy kid, and he was a teenager, and I was obsessed with it. I was having a great time. Um, And so that's really how I got started. But it was my first novel, and I was super naive and didn't know what I was doing. And it took me about three and a half years to really finish it. And even then, it wasn't close to done. I had no idea. I thought it was done. I finally put it down, I think is what happened. And then I wrote its sequel, of course, because that's what we do when we're new writers. We keep going with our epic series we want to write. We want to write them all. And then somebody talked me out of that, and I put it down and wrote some other things. I wrote an Anna Green Gables modern day retelling, and I wrote a book about a Alaskan girl who went to school in town because she used to live in the woods. (laughs) So I want to stop you right here because this is a really important point uh, that I think is really key. And that is you didn't take that first book and be like, this is a masterpiece. I'm going to get this published everywhere. You kept working on your craft and you kept writing instead of spending the next three years collecting two dozen or 100 million rejections on that first book. Yes, but let me add, this was 2004, 2005, and self-publishing was not then what it is today. Had I been trying to do this back when Kindle was a thing that you could just push a button, I who knows what I would have done. I really wanted to be traditionally published, so it would have been a hard struggle for me not to go there. But back then, self-publishing still had that stigma, and I didn't want that. I wanted traditionally published houses to publish my book. And so that's why I kept at it. Um, I was determined. And yeah, I, it, it was hard because you, that first book is kind of like your baby. And I took it to conferences with me and I would get so close. And even Steve Lobby rejected me. He was actually the first one to reject me. Um, and But I eventually did. I learned I had to put it down and try some new things. And you do, you grow every time you write a new book. And so that's really one of the best ways to improve is to just put that one down and write a new one because then you're going to be able to go back to that old one eventually and look at it and say, ooh, wow, (laughs) okay, now I know what to do. (laughs) Yeah, it often takes years of writing to get the perspective to see the freshman effort for what it is. Finally, the rose-colored glasses come off after you've written two or three additional books and you're like, wow, I'm so glad this book didn't get published. (laughs) This isn't with my name on it. Yes, so true. 
So back to your story. You're, you're writing more books. You wrote a version of Anne of Green Gables. Uh, what happened after that? Um, after that, oh, I wrote a my fifth one I wrote was a science fiction about uh, clones in Alaska in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then I wrote a fantasy story that I had an idea for. And I wrote the clone story, which became replication, in for NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. It was my first try. And National Novel Writing Month taught me that I could write an ugly first draft. It was the first, it was kind of a huge aha for me. I was like, whoa, if I race and I don't care if it's good, I can finish it faster and then I can fix it. And that really changed the way I was at, worked as a writer. That was huge for me. So then in November, in December, I put clones aside. And I was like, now that fantasy idea, because I'm Jill and I have 8 billion ideas in my head. <laughs> in December, I wrote a first draft of a fantasy novel. And we moved in January from Los Angeles area to the middle of Eastern Oregon. <laughs> and that's when I stopped going, I was going to the Mount Hermon conference. And, and, um, and I started then going to the Oregon Christian Writers Conference, because I was further north. And that next summer, I went. And that is where I pitched my my fantasy novel to Jeff Gerke. I left part of the story out. I'd met Jeff the year before at Mount Hermon and just kind of made friends with him because he liked weird stories and I was writing weird stories. And so when I came up to Oregon Christian Writers at this time, and frankly, I'm sorry, but it hasn't changed too much. There was nobody looking for young adult Christian stories. I wanted to pitch to editors from Zondervan or Thomas Nelson, and they were not at the conferences I was going to. And so I was desperate for anybody who would give me feedback. And since I had met Jeff the year before, when I was at OCW, Oregon Christian Writers, um, I put it in as to him as an editor just to get feedback. I didn't even know he had started a publishing house and he wanted to publish it. I was like, oh, wait, publish a where? <laughs> so I didn't know that he had started Marcher Lord Press, which eventually has now become Encla Enclave Christian Publishing. So you, um, this was your fifth or sixth book that you'd written? My sixth. Your sixth book. So you had five books kind of in the drawer. Maybe they they would come back. Maybe they were just learning experiences. But you got this book published with what I normally don't recommend, which is a brand new teeny tiny publisher. But it worked out for you. you were, your books were their um, initial hits. And I can say this because as the former marketing director of Enclave Publishing, I knew which books were selling. <laughs> and your books were often uh, the top-selling books uh, you know, every month for, for Enclave. So you had books that not only went out of the gate strong, but they had an enduring appeal. Now, those books initially weren't presented as young adult books. They were presented as traditional fantasy books um, because of a bias against young adult that which is probably something we should talk about. It's like Christian kids don't read young adult books. Christian adults don't read young adult books. So it was a young adult book with the young adult um, packaging taken off of it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that now that you've actually written successful young adult books? It actually makes me think of Steve's rejection to me with my spy kid story because he'd said something like, yeah, young adult doesn't really sell in the Christian market. I don't represent it is what he'd said back then. Um, and so, yes, Jeff did not want to call it young adult. These were books for grownups, even though my characters were both teenage characters. But in their world, in a medieval world, they were adults by that point. Um, so I just, we always kind of sort of agreed to disagree. I was begging him to please put it in the young adult categories in Amazon and please try this and please try that because I saw it as a young adult. In fact, I got a review from Voya, the Voice of Youth Advocates, which is a general market library publication, and it put me 
on the 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 best YA fantasy books of the year with with a Rick Riordan book and a bunch of different ones. And I was like, oh, see, it's young adult. And it didn't matter. I don't know why I was having this. <laughs> I just I was having this identity crisis, maybe. But um, but it's because I don't think the Christian publishing, um, many of the Christian publishers really knew how to sell young adult without Christian bookstores. And even at Christian bookstores at the time, there were this teeny little section over in the corner of two shelves, and most of them were Melody Carlson books. And then there was like three Brian Davis and a, and a Wayne Thomas Batson, and that's all. And and teens weren't in there. Teens were not shopping in there. So why is that? Why is Why have we as an industry failed so terribly to target young adults that now we're not even trying? <laughs> it's like we're, we're not even taking shots down the field. Well... There's two things I kind of want to say. First of all, um, we do better going to homeschool conferences, even meeting teens there, because a lot of times teens go with their parents. Um, but the with the Christian bookstore angle, most teens, even Christian teens, they want to read what everybody's reading. And whether or not their parents allow that um, sometimes is the factor. But um, so they're they're going to go to Barnes and Noble. They're, they're going to not even that. It's the word of mouth thing. And they're going to read what people are talking about. And so they're going to read Harry Potter and the Hunger Games and Divergent and whatever else is out there first, unless they hear people talking about it. And so if you're looking at a pie with the percentage of all readers that are teenagers, there's only a small little sliver to to reach Christian teen readers in that. And where are they hanging out that you're going to find them? They're, they're not at the Christian bookstore because they, they don't think there's anything in there for them. It's a self-perpetuating um, cycle, right? There's no books for them, so they don't go to the store, so there's no books for them at the store. I have a theory as to why this is the case, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the theory. If you look at the secular YA books that do really well, a lot of them are um, very gritty. They're, they deal with a lot of really heavy topics. Um, they're often dystopian, right? They're very dark. And young, the young people growing up nowadays are dealing with a much scarier world than their baby boomer parents or grandparents. Baby boomers grew up in a world where we had just won the war. We had no real scary enemies. Yes, there was this kind of existential threat of the bomb, but it was a very vague threat. And economically, uh, every decade, they're doing better than the decade before. And you knew you were going to get a job. And it was a very kind of safe, kind world to obviously way over gloss the second half of the 20th century. Whereas young people now have no idea what the future is going to hold. They don't know if they're going to have a job. You know, there's violence in the streets and there's a, it's a much scarier, darker world that they're seeing. And they're wanting books that resonate with that fear that they feel. And they're not wanting that kind of Disney glossy feel. And I feel like a lot of Christian YA authors are like, I hate the dark YA books. I'm going to write a book that's not dark. And it, and it's like, we have to be able to grapple with the darkness, right? It's in the darkness that the light shines the most brightly. And if you're afraid of the darkness, it may be that you're insecure about the light. And and that's something that we need to explore um, in fiction, which, you know, your books by darkness hid <laughs> dealt a lot with darkness and like literally it's almost on, too much on the nose. And yet they did really well. So, Tell me what you think of my theory. Is this valid that the young people are craving grappling with the darkness or am I totally off my rocker? Oh, no. I think definitely young people are grappling with that and some adults too, <laughs> um, for sure. Um, 
I did. I did try that. That's really what I wanted back when I started writing that spy kid book. Um, there was the, I was reading the books that my teens were reading and I was reading the books I found in the Christian bookstore and they were just, I wanted to write books that were like the general market, but that still had God in them. And that was my plan. And I set out to do it in my, the only way I could figure out how, and I kept doing it. And, um, I did it with captives and even that one was a little more out there and I kept getting out. I'm just trying to do it in my own way and it's not always well received. Well received by whom? By parents or by teens? Well, both. And and some of my readers had grown up with Bar Darkness Hid and so now they're young adults, they're in college age and um, many of them liked the Safeland series but some of the younger ones didn't know what to do with my, <laughs> with my dystopian Babylon. Um, <laughs> um, and um, so it's just, there's, I mean, you can't please all readers. No one can, no author can, and you don't even want to try to. But when the market is so, so, so much smaller, when you're thinking about the Christian market, and there's very few places to deliver, like to put your book on display, um, it's so hard to find the readers who who get what you're trying to do. And so I would have, I had a bunch of readers with um, my Blood of Kings trilogy who didn't like my replication book. They were more comfortable reading in a fantasy world than they were in a, a high school with lockers. And and that was more realistic to them. And, that, and they didn't maybe relate if they were homeschooled to, to a high school with lockers. And so that set people off. And, and let's talk about that because a huge part of the Christian YA market, and I will say this as a former homeschooler, are homeschoolers, right? The Christian pu- public school kids are reading Harry Potter just like all of the other public school kids. But the homeschool public school kids were not allowed to read Harry Potter. <laughs> Maybe they are now. Uh, but when Harry Potter was coming out, I had like one homeschool friend who was allowed to read it. Uh, and no one else was allowed to read it. And that's not like that was how you could tell, right, what kind of homeschool family they were. So if they wore, read Harry Potter, if they were allowed to do Pokemon or whatever. Um, and so that's that's a big part of the market. And a lot of people kind of ignore the homeschool market and they don't really, because they think it's really small. It's like, how many homeschoolers are there? It can't be that many homeschoolers. I hardly know any homeschoolers. Like, they're a big part of the Christian book reading market. And homeschool moms are a big part of the adult book reading market. So what are some of the things that you learned trying to sell to homeschoolers? One, don't set a book in a public school. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I went to one conference ever over and over. I think maybe eight years I went to the, there was a conference in Nampa, Idaho at the Nazarene College there. And every year they had it. And the first year I went, I had By Darkness Hit. It was the only book I had on my table. And every year I went and it, and it built, they come, they started coming looking for me. Where's that lady? There she is. You know, she's got a new book and it built over the eight years that I went there. Um, I found readers, but it's hard work. I couldn't afford to go on the road to all these homeschool conferences. And that's, that's what Brian Davis did to build his readership in the beginning when, with his series. Um, so that's where I made friends with, and a lot of those readers stuck with me with all my books, but not all of them did. And, um, I did learn, <laughs> this is a hard thing for writers because we have to decide, do we want to be loyal to this, this group of readers here or loyal to the stories God's putting on our hearts and who we feel called to write for. Like I never felt called to write for homeschool readers. I love them, 
so much, but I was working with my youth group in Burbank, California, and I was writing for them. And I remember getting an email once from a, she was actually a missionary kid from somewhere in South America who she was angry at me because she didn't like my safe lands. She's like, you started out with these Blood of Kings series, which was amazing. Then you wrote Replication and that one was okay. But now you're writing about these Babylon things. And she was just not my target reader, really. Mm-hmm. And when your target market is small anyway, and your target reader is so much smaller, you have to decide. So if you are targeting homeschooled readers and that's who you're targeting, then the mistakes I've made is to continue to chase that that darkness audience. You know, <laughs> I want to keep writing for them. And that's not necessarily all of the homeschool kids. Um, and I, so that, that's where I, my, my career has gone like this. Cause I can't decide, um, exactly how to write for who I'm writing for. And, and that changes too, which makes it even harder to know what to do. Cause your heart is to write for those, you know, Christian kids keeping their heads down in public school. And yet the readers that you're attracting, at least initially were the homeschool readers. It reminds me of Peter Drucker, who was this businessman who had all these new ideas of how to make factories run better. He's an American, and none of the American companies wanted to listen to him. And so, But the only companies that would listen to him were these companies no one had heard of in Japan. And so he's like, fine, whatever. I'll go to Japan. So he goes to Japan, and he works with these companies that no one had ever heard of, companies like Toyota and Sony. <laughs> companies <laughs> became a really big deal with his ideas that really did work, but it wasn't the audience that he was initially uh, trying to reach. And he did eventually have his kind of homecoming. He moved back to America and you know, he's in all of the business textbooks now and all the American car companies realize they had to learn from this guy who knew what he was talking about. But you're you're facing kind of a similar struggle in, with your brand even, right? Because how edgy you are, um, homeschoolers have a really low tolerance for edginess, right? That's the main thing they don't want in their book. And so when you start putting in that edginess, that darkness that resonates with perhaps more non-homeschooled uh, young people, you have the, a chance of alienating the homeschoolers. But I do feel like you can um, thread that needle. And I've, in your early books did that, right? By Darkness Hid had a lot of darkness in it. It was a very scary world, but it also had a really a lot of light in it. So kind of what have you learned? The, you've learned some things the hard way, but kind of explore that a little bit more in terms of how do you work in darkness and work in light into your books in a way that doesn't alienate both groups? Well, I think it did it pretty well in the Blood of Kings trilogy. It was allegory. So I had an allegory of darkness growing across the land. And then I had my two characters kind of coming of age in that um, and the allegory of of God and knowing that there's one God, not multiple gods. So I had that in there too. And that all fits really well in the homeschool market. Um, but then when I did the dystopian, and I wanted to do my Safe Land series as fantasy, but Hunger Games was still big. And Zondervan at the time said, can you make it a dystopian? And I was like, ah, yes, I'd like to sell a book. Okay, sure. Um, and so then I, you know, if you're talking about an ancient kind of a, dystopi- a dystopian Babylon versus a futuristic one, what that looks like is very different. And the futuristic one looks a little more like something that's modern. And I think so when I worked on my story world, that became too visible, I think, to my (laughs) readers to think about what was going on in this world. Um, Whereas so I got more away from the allegory. So I think the allegory is helpful. But allegory can also be hard because in Christian writing, oftentimes, 
it's the same allegory everybody uses and that gets old and the publishers want to see something different. It's like, okay, we've seen the allergy or excuse me, the allergy, (laughs) the allegory, like, um, the Narnia, you know, we've that same sort of allegory. They've seen that a lot. And so the allegory is safe for homeschool markets. And when you try to get into something different, you just have to be creative. I love how Nadine Brandes did it with her Fox book. She used, um, historical fantasy. So she did the the Catholic and Protestant Reformation era as and she did it as she changed it into types of magic. And she had a color magic and a white magic. It was very interesting and very clever. So you have to be creative and think about what can you do to make a new type of a of an allegory or a way of doing something in which you're 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 not giving the readers the real the real facts of life here that they don't really want to have to put in front of their face and see in the story, but they can, they can get the concepts and get swept away by it. I like that. So allegory works uh, for the Christian YA market, which I think is an important thing to hear because allegory does not work in a lot of other markets, right? (laughs) If you're trying to target a secular um, adult market, it doesn't work unless it's a business allegory. Those are huge genre a lot of people don't realize business allegories sell like crazy millions of copies of business allegories sell every year and uh, people are still buying who moved my cheese and the richest man in pipeline but (laughs) this is not the business books podcast what are some other tropes that you see resonating with kids these days (laughs) so what's up with the kids these days well um are you talking about the christian market or general market in just teens in general well i would say both and how is it different Okay, well, the Christian market, um, <laughs> I want to say, is, is mostly just enclave right now <laughs> for fantasy, <laughs> which is not technically true, but it kind of feels true because the other houses can't decide what they want to do with young adult, and they keep going back and forth. But um, so, well, in generally speaking, I'm seeing historical young adult is still big, um, messing with time. So, like, setting things like Nadine did or... Um, um, like my, I don't know if you've seen the My Fair Lady book or My Fa- My Plain Jane, which is a retelling of um, Lady Jane Grey, who was beheaded after a week. But they just made up a whole new story and they did it in a really silly way. So playing with history and using that is popular right now. Um, what's really popular in the general market is diversity and and having stories about characters who are not just white people um and not and and characters who are disabled we there's for too long books have only been published for a very certain population unfortunately and some many children students have felt left out they can't find themselves on a book cover and so putting these these characters as the main character as the star is is really important right now because it's worth pointing out young people in america have a very different ethnic makeup than older people in America. So if you look at like people over the age of 50, the majority of them are white. Um, the people under the age of 20, the majority of them are not white uh, in terms of demographics. And so if you're wanting to write for the majority of readers, that's shifted. Uh, and you may not have realized it, right? Because if you're looking at, if you're mostly hanging out with people who are like you, you may not realize that the, the kids these days are, are very different. I, I spoke at a high school. It was a homeschool, high school like co-op. And the thing that all the kids were into was PewDiePie. And I don't know if you're following PewDiePie, but he's this YouTuber and he has over a hundred million 
subscribers. And I feel like if you want to understand the kids these days, you've got to watch PewDiePie. You've got to at least be familiar with it because he is the biggest, most influential voice in all of young people in the whole world. 100 million subscribers. For some comparison, there's 300 million people in the United States and very few people over the age of 30 follow PewDiePie. I feel like I'm like the one old man, the <laughs> 34-year-old um, listening to PewDiePie. And this is a guy who talked about Plato's Republic for 45 minutes. He just broke down chapter by chapter Plato's Republic. And he had millions of views on this video. And if that is breaking with your view of young people, you've got to understand how young people are different because they're asking really deep questions. And when somebody's like, hey, let's discuss Plato's Republic for 45 minutes and do it for fun, and millions of them are like, yes, I want to have this discussion. And it's like, that was, I would say that was not like kids when I was a kid, but that's actually not true. I was discussing Iliad and the Odyssey, but I was Odyssey, but I was a total nerd. Now, like nerd culture has become mainstream, which I think is the big shift, right? The stuff that only the nerds are doing in the 80s, right? Comic books were just for nerds. Fantasy was just for nerds. All of that is mainstream now. Discussing philosophy has, has gone main, mainstream. And you can't just discount those nerds anymore because they're ruling the world as we predicted we would this is very true <laughs> so do you subscribe to pewdiepie i have never heard of pewdiepie i feel like i need to look this up my kids are big into youtubers especially like like minecraft people they're, that's what they're into um minecraft is still big and pewdiepie does minecraft so they may be they may be secretly following PewDiePie. oh okay well maybe they are <laughs> i'm gonna have to go ask her ask her after that's funny He's the second or third biggest YouTuber and the number one individual YouTuber. Wow. By like an order of magnitude. And he's been number one for like five years. And uh, it's I really do encourage you, not just you, but all of our listeners, if you're wanting to write for young, for young people, you need to watch enough PewDiePie to, to get it. Because at first it's going to seem so foreign and alien. Because <laughs> he's having this conversation with his own community. He has a community that gathers on Reddit. And he has his own subreddit, and they send things, and he's interacting with them. It's very interactive, and it's just very different. And the main, most influential voices are no longer television people. They're no longer radio, or not that it's been radio for a long time, but it's, you know, the days of the MTV generation are long gone. And now it's, it's Minecraft, it's PewDiePie. And uh, politically, he doesn't line up with left or right, right? He has his own ideology. I feel like Gen Z really has a different political philosophy, a different worldview. And it's really important to understand that if you want to write books that resonate with them. And YA in the general market is actually struggling in the last few years. And I suspect it's because they're having trouble with this shift between millennials and Gen Z. Gen Z is more like Gen X before them. And they're a little less idealistic. They're a little bit more practical. And they don't see themselves as the saviors of the world. (laughs) So millennials, we were brought up to, and we were told by our parents, homeschooled, non-homeschooled, like, you, we baby boomers have ruined the world and you've got to fix it. I can't tell you how many baby boomers told me that. And it put a lot of pressure on us. It was like, we got to fix it. And now we ha- we're on these, like, crusades to fix things. And we're all trying to fix different things and we're making bigger messes, as every generation does. Uh, Gen-, Gen Z isn't that way. They're quieter, they're more practical, and they're less... Um, uh, they're they're less motivated to to make change uh, in big ways, and I think maybe more motivated to make change in little ways. But maybe I'm off base. What are your thoughts? That's really interesting. What I'm thinking about is, like you said, the millennials are are on this mission to to save the world. Um, those are the people who are 
in most cases, the editors at these publishing houses in New York right now. Mm -hmm. And they're out to save the world with the own voices and the, and the representation. And that's why in the general market, when you ask what's, what do these editors want for publishing houses? They want own voices. They don't want your story. (laughs) They want somebody else's story because they're, that's, and they're the ones, it's not that the teens are out there standing outside the publishing houses say, we want more books about X, Y, Z. Um, it's these people in these positions of power who are wanting to put their agenda and their books out there for the readers. So it's funny how you talked about like their gender, like the millennial, because I'm seeing that. Um, and oftentimes we tend to, when we see that something was wrong, society as a whole tends to way overcompensate to make up for it. And so that's happening too. Um, but are you thinking it's a get woke, go broke situation in YA publishing right now where these millennial publishers are like doing these crusading books that aren't resonating with, Gen Z readers? No, I think that they do resonate with some, but I think that they might not be. And you know what? I see both. Um, but I meet, I talk with a lot of Christians who want to write for the general market, but they're like, oh, they only want LGBTQ stories or they only want books that are, you know, filled with sex and drugs or whatever, that dark kind of a thing. And, and they certainly do want all of that. That's the kind of thing that I'm seeing, but I'm also reading books that are coming out and, there's plenty of general market fantasy novels that at least in book one, <laughs> it's, it's fairly clean and they're still getting published by someone. And so I think the publishers know they, they need to have a balance. And when the numbers come back in and like, which one's sold, it's like, Oh, we have to keep putting these ones out because there's still readers who want to read the ones that aren't so heavily um, skewed one way or the other. And so you still might see, some characters like others been so often lately, I'm reading a general market book. And overall, it could be considered, a, you know, it's just a clean story. But then you see, you know, they mentioned that their moms, they have two moms, you know, they just mentioned my mom said no. And you know, it, that's all that's in the whole book. And so those little things are in there. Um, and that I feel, I wonder if that comes from the editors, or if that came from the author. Interesting. Uh, one thing to look at is like who in music is resonating with young people right now and, and uh, how are they doing it? And one artist I want to bring up as an example, because I think uh, Christian authors can really learn from him is NF. He's a Christian rapper and he's become a hit in the secular world. So, and how, and his, his music is incredibly dark and it deals with um, mental illness and he's very transparent about his own struggles with anxiety and depression. And yet, also has Jesus in it. Like there's that light of like the hope comes from Jesus. It's really powerful music. And, you know, his top songs got 800 million listens just on Spotify, right? Like these are songs that are real hit. And I think young people are longing for that. And a lot of young people are you know, struggling with, you know, mental illness and especially anxiety and depression, especially in 2020, right? It's like who's not struggling with these things right now? But young people are really struggling, right? Imagine if you're in high school. How scary the world looks right now, right? Like everybody's losing their jobs. There's protests in the streets, and you haven't been allowed to see your friends in the last six months. And you know your only interaction with your friends is on Minecraft, and your mom only lets you play for one hour a day. And it's like the rest, the other twenty three hours a day, you, you're cut off from your friends. Like that's a really tough world. And if you understand that pain that they're feeling, you can write books that meet them in that place of pain that really resonate and and give them hope. And because as Christian authors, we do have that hope to give. And that's what you hear in NF's music, especially as you listen through his albums. That's awesome. 
Yeah, there. Um, I don't know that my daughter listens to NF, but the but our youth pastor is is often playing playing him. Um, my daughter, being sixteen, gets online with her friends to watch YouTube together um, right now because we can't go anywhere. <laughs> um, but also, one thing I notice about her is that she just wants everybody to love each other, and she, you know, she's all about. This is a safe space and, you know. Why can't we all just get along? (laughs) Yeah. And and that's very much, um, I mean, she has friends that are from all walks of life. And and so, as like you were talking about the the youngest generation right now, they just want to make a difference in a small way. And that's that's kind of just what she's about. It's just like loving people. And and you can certainly share Christ that way. That's the easiest, well, frankly, the, the way we all should be sharing him every day. I love that. We're almost out of time, but what advice do you have? What final kind of bits of wisdom for somebody who's really wanting to write to this younger generation and they're not sure where to get started? Well, um, you, I usually at writers conference say, just write your story and, and don't, don't worry too much. But when you're writing for teens, if you don't know any teenagers right now, if you don't have any in your life and you're not reading any teen books for teens that, that frankly, and I'm not talking Harry Potter or Divergent or Hungry. I'm talking not those old millennials. The millennials are in their 30s now. Doesn't that make you feel old? <laughs> yes. We're not the young. We're not the youngins anymore. Those books are old now. Sadly, um, year 2000 and and newer. Read some of those books for young adults. Um, see what's out there and really get yourself. You know, respect your dream. Do some research. See what's out there. Um, find a way to hang out with teens. Go talk to your youth pastor. Volunteer. Um, sign up to be a tutor, get an exchange student. I don't know. Um, find some way to to hang out with teens if you don't hang out with them at all, because it's going to be really hard to write. You can't write teen books as if looking back only on your own experience and saying things like, you know, it's heavy, dude. That's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's really solid advice. And I want to underline that. And it's also a way of blessing the teens in your church and your church, right? There, most churches are desperate for people to volunteer for the youth group, right? Usually they're, you know, begging people from the pulpit, hey, come and do this. And this way you're able to interact with teens and you're not just there preaching to them. Hopefully you're listening to them and asking them questions like, hey, what music are you listening to? What books are you reading? What movies are you watching? What YouTubers are you subscribed to? And then you go and you listen to that music. You you watch those YouTubers. I, I remember when the University of Texas won the national championship in football. And the coach at the time was Mac Brown. And um, the top player, uh, no, it was when we won the uh, Heisman Trophy. It was right before we won the national championship. But it was leading up to the national championship. And Ricky Williams was our Heisman Trophy uh, player. And they were like, you know, how what was the secret of Mac Brown? And Mac Brown's this white guy and uh, he's got this, you know, football team. It's very diverse, but it's a lot of African-American players. And what Mac Brown did was he got an iPod and he put $500 worth of hip hop songs on it. And he, and as Ricky Williams said, he learned to hear the beauty and the beat. (laughs) And by accepting their music, they felt accepted culturally by him. And, and, and yes, there was a racial element, but there was also a bigger generational element, right? He's this old man, <laughs> and he's two generations separated from his players. But by learning to appreciate their music, he's able to connect with them in a really deep way. And they went, went out and won a Heisman Trophy, and then they went out and won a national championship for 
I mean, for him, but also, you know, for, for Texas, they did it for, they did it for America. <laughs> but but I, I feel like that that's really important. You need to, if you want to write for young people, you need to learn to listen to their music and you need to learn how to listen to them. And if you can't do that, you're not ready to write for young people. Absolutely, Thomas. All right, Jill, where can people find out more about you? Um, you can find out more about me at jillwilliamson.com. And um, I'm also on goteenwriters.com. That's where I blog about writing. Um, jillwilliamson.com will take you to all the other places on social media where I hang out. I hang out mostly on Instagram these days, but on Facebook a little bit too. And you also have a book, Story World First. So a lot of the kinds of books that young people read are fantasy, sci-fi type books. And so if you're wanting help with story world, uh, story uh, building, world building, uh, I encourage you to check out Story World for some of the authors in my mastermind uh, group uh, reading that book right now. And they're going to be very disappointed that that was not the topic of this episode. But oh. maybe we can talk about world building in a future episode. Uh, Jill Williamson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.